Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are back with Alan Moore's Limping to Jerusalem post 1100 AD. This story can be found uh, in a novel called The Voice of the Fire, which we've been covering chapter by chapter. And this is chapter six of that novel. This whole novel was originally published in 1996. Last episode, we recapped the events of the story. And this episode, we are going to discuss it, though I suspect that means Glenn is going to give us a brilliant lecture on history, which I am pretty excited for. So Glenn, why don't you let us know what discussion we'll be doing or what wonderful lecture we'll be listening to today? Right. As we always do with the stories here, I'm going to start the discussion by talking about the historical context. And as I said in the last episode, the recap episode, there are a lot of moving parts here. More is really up to something. So there's actually a lot of contextual work to do here. I'm just going to start very broadly by talking about a term that I used a few times in the, the recap, and it's a term, high middle ages. I think we should define what I mean by that. I was kind of just using it without thinking that I should actually define that for people <laughs> who don't do this for a living. But um, actually, even before I define high middle ages, I should probably just define middle ages at all. The dates that we give to this period are usually 500 to 1500 because, you know, we like nice round numbers like that. But what we really mean when we talk about the Middle Ages is the civilization in Western Europe between the end of the Western Roman Empire, which is a process that began around the year 400 and was completed around the year 600. And then on the other end of that, we have the end of a unified Western Christendom, which happened during the Reformation itself. Also a long process, this one beginning around 1520. Of course, coinciding with this end of a unified Western Christendom was the European discovery of the Americas, which then saw the expansion of Western European civilization into the wider Atlantic world. I imagine that we're going to start getting you know, some of that happening in the stories to come. Then within the Middle Ages, we usually divide the Middle Ages into three parts. So there's an early Middle Ages, which is what I have worked on. And then there's a later Middle Ages. And in between is what we call the High Middle Ages, uh, because Middle Middle Ages actually sounds really dumb. So High Middle Ages <laughs> is what we call it. Uh, the dates we put on this are 1000 to 1300. And this is actually really the world that people imagine. It's what people mean when you say Middle Ages or medieval. This is the world of stone castles and knights in armor. It is also the time of Arthurian romance. Uh, I mean, when they're written, not when they take place, but when they're written. And it is also the time of the Crusades. In fact, really, the only bit of the Middle Ages that live in our pop culture that is not in the High Medieval period is the Black Death, which is in the later Middle Ages. Uh, maybe also, I guess, the Renaissance is part of our pop culture, but that's also in the later Middle Ages, you know, because people do know some of those figures. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci's in Star Trek, for example, right? But uh, okay, that's enough on periodization. I just realized that I had been using that term without defining what I meant by it and wanted to clarify that. So, okay. On my list of things that people on the street associate with the Middle Ages was the Crusades. And hey, that's the backdrop of Limping to Jerusalem. Now, in the recap, I said that no one in the Middle Ages used this term, that it's a term that has been invented by modern people well after the fact. And certainly, 
at this point, right, it would not have even been a plural. There was just this one military campaign, and that is it. And in fact, the Second Crusade begins a whole 50 years after the First Crusade, which is to say it's a longer gap than the one between the First and Second World Wars. It's a longer gap between the American War of Independence and the War of 1812, just to give some more recent comparison. So it's a long time before we would even start to think about this as an active, ongoing type of military campaign. But at any rate, it really is just the First Crusade that concerns us here. First Crusade, it's a weird event. I mean, it's a shocking event. Now, the context of this event was the arrival in the Near East, what today we really call the Middle East, but I'm going to continue to call it the Near East. So the arrival in the Near East of a group of people called the Seljuk Turks who ruled an empire that covered really greater Persia and the Fertile Crescent, which includes the the Holy Land. The Seljuk Turks also expanded into Anatolia, which is what today is called Turkey. But at this point, Anatolia is the territory of the Byzantine Empire, which is also called the Eastern Roman Empire. And I, I am sorry to everyone that every single thing I'm saying here has five names, but that's this is how it this is how it is. So <laughs> at any rate, the emperor of the Byzantine Empire, uh, his palace was in Constantinople. He sent a letter to the Pope asking for some help defending his territory. The Pope is the head of the church in Rome. And what the emperor is looking for is just some manpower. He's basically just asking, do you have any mercenaries you can send my way? But the Pope kind of just said, hold my beer. And what he did instead was call on the elite of Western Christendom to go and liberate Jerusalem from the political control of Muslim rulers, which uh, is not at all what the Byzantine emperor had asked for. This is not on his radar. This is not something that he wants. But people heard this call and they went. And why they went is itself a huge field of scholarship. That's actually where I want to pause and have a bit of a conversation here before we get into talking about the Templars. It was a really big deal for people to go here, and especially for these people who had official positions to manage, also private agricultural businesses that they needed to manage. It was a big deal for these people to just pick up, leave the continent for a few years, And in fact, some of the best records that we have about who went on crusade were the legal documents that they drew up about how affairs were to be managed in their absence. And it was also hugely expensive to make this journey. And so one of the other types of evidence that we have about crusading is loads of documents about people borrowing the money, taking out private loans in order to fund their crusade. But okay, at any rate, really what I'm trying to get at here is wondering why it is that Lord Simon, who is properly called Simon de Senlis, uh, really what I'm trying to get at here is why Simon de Senlis went on this expedition. And of course, in this case, I don't mean the real person, though. That is a question that I, as a historian, am actually interested in. But here we are interested in Moore's character version, his fictional version of Simon de Senlis. I actually don't think, Brandon, that there's anything explicit in the text about why he went on crusade. But what do you think was his motivation? Well, I think in the text, we do see that Lord Simon, after the fact, as he's reflecting on it, says he he wanted to 
get rich. Uh, so there was some hope that through, you know, the sacking of towns along the way and so forth, there would be spoils that would increase his wealth. Um, but then also there's this sense, and this is actually important more to uh, the structure of the story to have the payoff at the end work. We also get the sense that he wanted to see Jerusalem, that is to say, the Holy Land. Right. So there is this sense of faith and belief, this desire almost to make a pilgrimage on on Lord Simon's part. So those are the two reasons that I saw in the text for Lord Simon wanting to go. But what fascinates me, if we can return to your uh, uh, talk here on on what's going on in the historical context of the story is how these uh, men who went on crusade expected to pay back the loans, if not for the the pillaging of uh, these other towns. I mean, what was their expectation here in in the re- in re- returning with riches? Yeah, certainly there was some expectation that you're going to sack some cities and acquire some wealth in some way. Though that is not what the bankers are thinking about, right? The bankers who agree to lend these people their their money are not counting on that. You know, the loans are about, well, you do have a massive agricultural business. You require, you know, five years worth of revenue from that in order to fund yourself and a contingent of troops going on this on this expedition because you've got to you know bring all your own military equipment because uh, that's what the military is in this day there are no you know state sponsored state run standing armies standing armies or armies at all are just private businesses and so you've got to essentially fund that all yourself out of your agricultural business and it takes you know 5 years worth of revenue for that you don't have that sitting around certainly not in, in cash and so we're going to front you that uh, on the expectation that You'll be able to pay off the loan just from the revenue of your of your I farms see. and 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 so on. So that was not from the business perspective. That wasn't the uh, from the banking perspective. I should say that wasn't something that bankers were gambling on, counting on. But it probably was. In fact, we know it was a motivator for some people who went on crusade. You can read books from really like the middle part of the twentieth century that will present that as being probably the most important motivator. Uh, and by middle of the twentieth century, I guess what I mean is right after the second. World War when everyone was extraordinarily cynical about violence and also extraordinarily cynical about the relationship um, between and among people of different different faiths, different religions, right? All of all of that for real obvious reasons in the aftermath of the Second World War. Scholars working on these questions now are going to lean a lot more on genuine, legitimate, deep felt piety, that that's what people were interested in. In fact, one of the things that the Pope does in order to convince people to to go to undertake this expedition that does often, you know, certainly requires a big expense. It doesn't for everyone require going into debt, but definitely requires a big expense, requires leaving your family, requires leaving your business. Also, risk of death right it's not it's not zero right. the risk of death is not zero at this point so why you know what is then the incentive for people to go well, the pope gives one which is that going on crusade is an act of christian uh penance or or is an act of christian uh penitence really right which is to say that uh if you go on this crusade you are forgiven for all of the sins that you've ever 
committed without having to do the other things that you normally have to do for that. And so if you die on the crusade, you are assured uh, the forgiveness of God and assured a place in heaven. And that we now understand was a significant motivator for people, uh, people whose living was killing people. And they know on an intellectual level, even though they live in a world of violence, they know on an intellectual level that the religion that they believe in um, <laughs> isn't into that violence, right? And says that you shouldn't be running around killing people. This is something that Christians really from late antiquity uh, up until now, <laughs> of course, have a lot of anxiety about. And in the period that I work on, I mean, we have examples, for example, just uh, one of the kings that I work on who um, helped to dismantle the Western Roman Empire, writing with the most important priest in his area about exactly this, right? So this is something just as an example, we know that people had a lot of anxiety about. So we have a much greater appreciation, I think, now than we did a few generations ago about the extent to which piety, this quest for forgiveness, for leading this type of life, motivated people to go on crusade. And I definitely see that here in Moore's character. It's here in Simon Descendless. I think that's the only way that we can explain then this breakdown that he has at the end, because what's happened is not that he's gone on crusade and has been forgiven for his sins, although that actually, I guess, has happened. And that's technical sense. But he hasn't gone to Jerusalem. He hasn't walked the path that Christ walked on his way to his crucifixion, which is something that he seemed to be really keen on doing. Instead, what he's discovered is that Christ was crucified, maybe, but there was no resurrection, that his body never ascended into heaven, and that this religion that he believes in that led him to go on this crusade in the first place is all a sham. It's all based on some kind of lie. And so this is really a crisis of faith for him that he's having here on the the last page. I found that really uh, emotive. I found that emotionally satisfying. But I also at the same time have to say that I found it undermined by part of the way that Moore writes this character. And this is where I want to go back to maybe not talk at length about, but just to acknowledge that one of the things that Moore is doing in this story is, well, the same move that George R. R. Martin makes in A Song of Ice and Fire, or you know, if you think of the TV show only, what we call Game of Thrones, which is to present the Middle Ages, the High Middle Ages especially, as this hyper-violent, hyper-gross well, hyper <laughs> period, right? Where there's just stuff wrong with people's bodies all the time, and everyone is violent to each other. You know, basically, no one's ever had sex that wasn't rape. Uh, everyone's abusing their kids, uh, or at least, you know, in some way, if not physically, then emotionally and verbally. And part of that, then here, part of part of the way that Moore is doing that is in presenting Simon really as kind of an uncouth figure, is also then to make him greedy, right? So it gives him this double motivation for going on crusade, and I don't think that was necessary. I think it undermines the actual arc of Simon to do that. And I guess when I say I don't think that was necessary, I mean that in a, a story sense, but also in a historical sense as well, because Simon didn't need to go get rich on crusade. Some people did. Some members of this class didn't have access to a lot of wealth because their older siblings were going to have it or their uncles or something like that. Uh, not Simon Descendless. Simon Descendless is super rich already. Like he is on top of the pyramid here, or at least, you know, one rung down from the top of the pyramid here. So it's just, it's just historically inaccurate as well to suggest that he needed to go get this wealth, acquire this wealth this way. It gives one the sense in 
reading the story that more has an axe to grind with Christianity. And and we've talked about uh, this sort of thing happening before, this kind of authorial breakthrough that uh, in the text that kind of breaks the enchantment of the text itself. And I feel that is happening in this story. More is kind of taking that position, um, that all too popular position of saying, well, the Crusades were bad, actually, right? Like the Christians did bad stuff. And it's like, yes, of, of course, right? <laughs> Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and instead, and Morris taking that like one step further by saying, okay, uh, Simon saw all of this and he, he, you know, didn't approve of the stuff the Christians were doing, particularly the raping and the, the pillaging, the killing of children and so forth. But he makes it this extremely uh, violent kind of, as you were pointing out, I mean, I think we call it grim dark if we're thinking of it in terms of pure fantasy. Just this, this concept that um, everybody is treating belief in the Christian God the same way uh, like people in a largely like otherwise maybe pagan or polytheistic culture treat beliefs in their God, which is to say it's purely cultural, but it's a deeply hedonistic society and religion is a justification for hedonism, really somatic hedonism or some kind of everybody's got a violent temper. Every, And it's just our, our society could be characterized in the exact same way if you want it to, but, um, and historians may do that, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel true to life. And, uh, there's no nuance there. And instead what it feels like is happening in this story, apart from, uh, more sort of using history as, as his, you know, ink to paint this story or his his uh, palette to to color this story uh, is somebody who's really saying, you know, Christianity is a fraud. Now, also in the story with the, you know, we brought up that this despair that Simon feels at the end where he says, uh, you know, he's thinking there's no resurrection because we found the body of Christ. And here, more must be playing with this kind of pre- empirical approach to evidence, right? So like, how could we prove that using some kind of empirical methodology or at least some kind of approved methodology? You know, they don't have carbon dating testing. They, you know, how do you prove something like what you found in an ossuary is the mummified body of Christ? I'm sure there's some historical answer to that. Um, but it's not clear to me why Simon would so easily collapse his faith uh, in order to kind of believe in the discovery of, of such an object. So there's a kind of a lot going on in this story that I think may be uh, confronted with, with this sort of evident, evidentiary or empirical sort of mindset that we typically have towards evidence can also feel a little off in the story and feel like the authorial intent is breaking through in a way that sort of gets us thinking about the author more than the text itself. Right. Simon is convinced that this is the head of Christ without anyone actually telling him that it's the head of Christ. In fact, he says when he sees it, he doesn't know, like he under he sees that it's a head, right? But he doesn't know what it is or why these knights are using it in their religious service, their religious ceremony right now. But then as he gets closer to it, he has some kind of mystical epiphany 
and knows that it's the head of Christ at that point, though he doesn't, you know, the text doesn't say he knows it's the head of Christ. That's actually like never said explicitly in the text. But if you know the Templar lore, then you, you also know that that's what this is. We'll, we'll get to Templar lore in a minute. So <laughs> there is some kind of mystical experience that he has while he's out on crusade, but it's a mystical experience that actually breaks his faith rather than uh, confirms it in some way. I have more questions about about how this works, actually, but we do need to talk about Templars before we do that. But before we get there, though, that is next on the outline here. I just want to point out, a, just, just for the sake of fun, I guess, really, uh, point out a few more ways that Moore is definitely writing about Simon de Senlis as a fictional character rather than a real historical person. And some of this is actually about this relationship with Maud, which here in the story is very definitely depicted as, well, awful and full of uh, sexual violence and then loathing. But they actually had several children. They had three children. And in fact, Simon actually had two sons before he went on crusade, not one, though they are both still tr- children at this point. In fact, they're both still under five. It's funny the way Moore takes liberties with with history. Like we said, I mean, not only is his um, is he kind of casting the modern mind back into these periods, he's not really imagining. I should say, charitably imagining the minds of people in a in a pre modern world, or even maybe pre post modern world, um, and that that itself is kind of when we finish this novel eventually. Should we continue to? Uh, get nominated to do these episodes and and people vote for them, we're going to have to discuss Moore's imagination of the past, particularly the way that um, the intellectual milieu of the time period he's he's writing in, the periods he's writing in, um, reflect a certain lack of intelligence or something like that, or a, a brutishness or a, a naivete, some, just something other than almost a, a, a Hegelian relationship to history, which is to say what we have now is closer to a golden period than where people in the past lived. So we don't need to think of them as like us in in some way, or their intellectual capacities are different because of their access to literature or whatever it is. There's just, there's something with Moore's approach to the past that is worthy of a very robust discussion when we get to the end of the novel. Yeah, I mean, we're just about halfway through at this point. So we are actually at a point now where in preparing for this story, I have also created a document for the eventual wrap-up episode that we will do for this book (laughs) to keep track of all of these types of things that are occurring to me as I'm reading these stories. Interestingly, I mean, you're talking about a world post-Enlightenment, right? Which happens in the 18th century. There are three stories, only three stories here that are going to be in the post-Enlightenment world. So I am really keen to find out, yeah, if people are still being just kind of dumb and obtuse in the way that he he writes about them. Uh, I have in the past called this presentism. In fact, I've talked quite a bit about this in some of our earlier and earliest episodes on Voice of the Fire. I think it's much more heavily present, actually, in the first three stories than it has been in the m- more recent three stories that we've that we've covered. But yeah, it's a it's a journey, it's a trajectory that I'm definitely keeping track of, and I'm excited to talk about when I don't know three years from now we do a wrap up episode <laughs> on this book. That'll be a lot of fun. But we should start thinking here about what is the weird element of this story. We're 20 minutes into this episode, this discussion episode, without getting to the weird of this. And here, the weird centers on the Knights Templar. 
the Templars are another element of the high middle ages that I don't know, linger in our pop culture, I think might be the phrase that I'll use, you know, so most people have heard of them, right? Now, the Templars were what's called a military order, which means an order of monks for whom waging war against Muslims was part of their duties. In fact, usually it's their principal duty. And there were other military orders. I mean, some people may have heard of these. These include the Hospitallers, also the Teutonic Knights. But the Templars were the first. And I really should be clear here that these were not monks who wanted to go fight. It's not a Kung Fu movie. These were knights who wanted to be holy. That's what's happening here. So the Templars are founded in 1119 in the Holy Land, and their name comes from the fact that they are based on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And the idea here is that they're going to be the defenders of the Holy Land from any attempts by Muslim states to reconquer it. I guess I should actually say that, hey, uh, the First Crusade, which we talked about already for a few minutes, it was successful. The Holy Land became a new kingdom in Western Christendom. It's now ruled by French speakers at the time that this story is is set. Now, of course, that state has its own military. But the idea of the Templars here is that they won't be tethered to any kind of secular or military concerns. They're just here to defend the Holy Land as a type of sacred mission. And here again, I'm going to go back to George R. R. Martin as a point of comparison, just to say, hey, if you've watched Game of Thrones, then you've seen exactly this sort of thing with the Night's Watch. The Night's Watch is a fantasy version of a military order. So the Templars recruit a lot of people. They also receive a lot of donations to help them in their work. Uh, That is to say, the work being building fortresses, buying farms, then also to feed the soldiers and so on. In fact, the Templars are so successful at recruiting and getting charitable donations that they have recruiting stations and other types of facilities all over Western Christendom. And they become pretty entwined in high-level politics in some big ways, and they have also a ton of wealth that they have to manage. And in this period, as we've been talking about a little bit already, wealth meant land. So really what I mean here is that they had a lot of land to manage. And after nearly two centuries, they were one of the wealthiest institutions in the world, not just Western Christendom, but the whole world. And in some ways, some ways of looking at them is actually to see them as really the first ever international or multinational corporation. There are, in fact, a lot of books that look at the Templars through that lens. And the Templars even did invent some techniques for accounting and banking that like actual multinational corporations today, like Amazon and Apple and so on, use. Like They're still with us. And so the real legacy of the Templars may actually be in banking and accounting, really, rather than in anything else. But Of course, right, the question is, what does any of that have to do with why Alan Moore has put them in this story uh, and done so 20 years before they actually exist? Well, the answer to that has to do with how the order came to an end. And that happens, the, the Templars come to an end in 1312. So founded in 1119 and in 1312, so almost two centuries. By this point, by 1312, the Templars had lost any connection to the Holy Land because the Holy Land is now solidly back in the possession of a Muslim state. Now, for reasons that are not explicit, and therefore reasons that historians really love to argue about, the King of France, this is a a dude named Philip IV, uh, the King of France arrested the leadership of the Templars when they were in France for reasons we don't need to get into, but they're in France. He arrests the leaders of the Templars and charges them with all sorts of crimes. 
And some of these crimes were kind of boring white-collar crimes, you know, going back to this accounting and banking stuff. But the big deal is that Philip charged them with being, well, really, with just with being all kinds of heretics. Uh, they were charged with worshiping idols and spitting on the cross, among a host of other things. And specifically, they were charged with worshiping, and this is really what matters here, specifically, they were charged with worshiping a mummified head that they kept in their headquarters in Jerusalem. And uh, hey, that's our story. That's what our story is about. Also in our story, that we didn't call attention to it in the recap, but also in our story is the name Baphomet, uh, which is allegedly a demon whom the Templars worshipped. Now, as I said, we didn't call attention to this in the recap, but it is here in the story as the name of the mummified head, or at least as a term applied to it. It's actually not clear to me what Godfrey means when he says this. Um so that's an interesting interesting point just on its own. But at any rate, the Templar leadership was all tortured until they confessed to these charges. Then they signed written confessions laying out how the Templars had all been secret demon worshippers for 200 years. And these court records have survived. And they're super fun. I mean, these if you can get your hands on these, which you can quite easily, they're just you know digitized, and many of them have been translated. Uh, they're a lot of fun to read. As you can imagine, of course, right, loads of scholars have worked on this event, which is usually called the Trial of the Templars. It's a proper noun. But even more than scholars, pseudo-scholars and general types of conspiracy theorists have made these texts their uh, personal playgrounds. And these people will say things like, everyone knows the Templar confessions weren't real, but what my book supposes is... What if they were, right? That's basically what those types of books are are doing. And we will very shortly take up one specific book that is at the heart of what Moore is doing in this story. But I have been jabbering for a while with, uh, well, without letting you, Brandon, our resident conspiracy fan, actually say anything about this. So I'm going to pause here and let you have your say about the Templars a little bit. Well, I know very little about the Templars, except for how they exist in in, in uh, except for how they exist within conspiracies, and much of that uh, interest. Uh, I mean, of course, you grow up as a boy, I suppose, in the '90s, coming of age. There were at bookstores just countless books on lost treasures, uh, lost lands, lost everything, right? And and before the internet and satellite technology was available to everybody, maybe you believed yourself to be someone capable of finding something that was lost. It's something that I think, uh, I don't know, for my son, I'm a little worried about. He's not going to stumble across a book about the secrets of Ireland or something like that. Where, you know, there's a treasure in a cave or something that you can find in a, in a, in a, in a bunch of clues no one's been able to solve to help you find them. Um, you know, you're going to be the one to crack the case. But I think, you know, a couple things uh, where, where my interest really, a lot of these kind of ideas and stories really came to a head for for me was was reading Umberto Eco's great novel Foucault's Pendulum. Uh, probably, I don't know, in my early twenties at some point. That plus watching the HBO series Carnival. <laughs> about the Templars somehow uh, was was uh, formative for me. So what what you generally get is, yeah, these guys hoarded wealth and then they got disbanded for all sorts of um, really obscenities is what sticks in my mind a lot more than profanities, uh, though both were on the docket for reasons to torture and get a confession out of them. And, and then they disbanded, but they're still 
temple wealth, right? And then eventually, I suppose, if you uh, want to take a tack that you've just taken, Glenn, we can say, yeah, Jeff Bezos is obviously a Templar, right? Uh, if his company's using temple uh, accounting practices, it, it, there's no doubt that he's gotten help from from the secret society of the Templars that still exists. That may be now the Illuminati. They keep on changing, you know, hands and names in order to survive in 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 the murky back channels of of our world. So yeah, that's uh, I, I love this stuff. Right, this is the kind of stuff I wish we still had more of in the conspiracy world instead of you know kind of anti science. <laughs> <laughs> and attacks on the news. I guess our, uh, a lot of conspiracy theorists now are trying to decode the media instead of looking for lost treasure. Lost treasure, way more fun than decoding the media. That's a that's a real shame. We've 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 left behind, I guess, the golden age of conspiracy theories or, or pseudo historical conspiracy theories. But you know. You and I can recreate that experience for our own children. I also lament this. I mean, this is how I have become a part-time history professor is loving exactly these same types of things and discovering <laughs> them, of course, in our, our local library with with Brent and, and Jay, also our local bookshop, which was, you know, like right next right next to the library or they shared a back alley at any rate. And uh, yeah, our kids aren't going to have that experience, but we can have basement libraries where we can recreate that for them or, yeah. or do our best. <laughs> uh, but I do also want to emphasize here Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco. You told me about that book when we were at work back in our military days. And so uh, in some part, that's part of the uh, the genesis actually of the whole podcast network because that was a book <laughs> I went and read then you and I talked about incessantly at work for a while. I would love to do some Umberto Eco somewhere on the network someday. Elizabeth, my wife, she also has requested that of us. Uh, in fact, specifically, she wants me and Jay to uh, read uh, The Name of the Rose uh, together, mm, which I have mm -hmm. been thinking about doing, you know, that, that that a place for us to do that is actually as a bonus episode for the Sherlock Holmes series that we're doing on Patreon right now. But uh, I think the problem is that Jay and I would then want to do like 10 years of research on that. Like we would get so bogged down. I don't know when we would actually get around to recording the episode. And so I have not, I haven't, haven't done that yet. I haven't, haven't wrapped him into that, but maybe, maybe I will. You might've just sold me on it, but uh, yeah, let's go talk about another book here. It really is the elephant in the room. And that is the pseudo scholarly book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Oh, who could forget? Oh, yeah. I mean, this book is huge. It was written by uh, Michael uh, Bagent. I'm actually not sure how that last name is pronounced. But then the other co-writers here are Richard Lee and Henry Lincoln. This is a book published in 1982. I should say it was originally published in the UK, and there it was given the title The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. But I'm going to use the American title Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Now, these writers claim that Jesus Christ married Mary Magdalene and had children with her before he died. Mary Magdalene and those children, and I also think Joseph of Arimathea, uh, they fled to southern Gaul, which is to say southern France. Somehow, in doing so, they became Roman aristocrats, and then... Centuries later, their descendants became the Merovingian kings of France. Those are people I actually have, have worked on. The Merovingians, I should say, they don't make it past the 8th century, but the writers of this book, the writers of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, claim that there is a secret society known as the Priory of Sion that was formed in 1099 in Jerusalem in the aftermath of the First Crusade. Uh, it was formed to restore the rightful rule of the descendants of Christ. 
and not just the rule of France, but really the rule of all Christendom. And so the idea here is that, you know, maybe the papacy isn't really needed if the actual biological descendants of Christ are around. These writers then also claim here in this book that the Knights Templar were founded shortly afterwards as the military and also financial arm of the Priory of Sion, and that it was their knowledge of Jesus's marriage and children that really led them to have heretical beliefs and practices, which were revealed during their trial, right? So everything that was revealed during their trial, these charges were actually true, but it's not that they were worshiping demons. It's just that they knew that Jesus had gotten married and had kids. And so they had a different sense of the story of Christ. And of course, then, in this line of thinking, the reason that Philip IV wanted to disband the Templars was because he didn't want to be replaced by a descendant of Jesus. And also, that's why the Pope went along with this, because, right, he didn't want to be replaced either. So, yeah, the idea is that this secret society, of which the Templars are one part, possesses occult knowledge that they gained in the Holy Land during the First Crusade, and that this knowledge is a threat to the church in some way. And uh, in addition to being the exact plot of the Da Vinci Code, right, that is also (laughs) the same general outline that we have here, the more, of course, clearly has changed the specifics, right? Because here, rather than proof that Jesus had reproduced, it's proof that Jesus hadn't been resurrected. And I think we've we've talked about this obliquely a little bit already, but here I just want to state clearly that what Moore is envisioning is actually, I think, much more cynical and much more sinister than the source material. It is so much more cynical. I mean, and this is what I mean by this authorial breakthrough that disenchants the text, that brings you out of the text. If you're feeling the author's views sort of intrude upon the text in a way that doesn't feel natural to the text itself or the time period, or even to you know us as, a, as post-Enlightenment readers who are looking for maybe a reason for Simon to have this belief to trust in what the Templars are saying. Um, but the, the, the cynicalness comes from um, a doctrine of Christianity that can be found in the New Testament, uh, which basically says, if there is no resurrection, there is no reason to believe any of this, right? So Christianity really hinges upon the truth of the resurrection or the truth of the claim of the resurrection. So to have that claim denied or undermined really leaves Simon with nothing left to believe in, even though a lot of his, I don't know, either tenants or workers or, uh, you know, feudal workers, whatever you have, are having a kind of a pretty fun, like, horse fair autumn festival uh, in the background of the story that he could probably just go join if he still felt he needed some kind of fun uh, religious diversion. So, yeah, a lot going on here in this story that is really uh, an attack on the foundational beliefs or orthodox beliefs of of Christianity itself. Because it, what's going on in, in Holy Blood, Holy Grail is not actually attacking any of that, though I suppose that you know there certainly are some Christians who would find it faith shattering to discover that that Christ had had children or something like that but for the writers of holy blood holy grail they don't deny the divinity or or any of the real tenets of christianity the resurrection and so on or at least that's my recollection of the book i should say but that 
it's really the church, right, that they think is kind of a sham. So it's not the religion, it's it's the church. And that the idea of this secret society is that they're going to restore the rightful rule of Christ's descendants. And actually, that's going to be better for everybody in some way. You know, how exactly? Totally unclear. I mean, it's a bonkers book, right? But yeah, Moore <laughs> is not just making this like anti-authority, anti-church, it's, it's anti-faith here in its real cynicism. But yeah, we... We should talk a little bit more about this book, I guess. I think we have talked about this book on the air before, though I don't remember where that was. And I also don't remember if you've read it. Have you read Holy Blood, Holy Grail? I've not read Holy Blood or Holy Grail. I've read, you know, obviously the Da Vinci Code and then was like this. Um, so I've come across Holy Blood, Holy Grail a, a number of times and read like excerpts of it enough to understand its cultural impact. But I haven't sat down and, you know, read the book itself. It's one of those... Um, it's one of those books that I've I've come across many times and just didn't didn't buy and so haven't read I suppose and then uh, what I ended up buying actually instead of Holy Blood Holy Grail at the height of my interest in the Templars which was in my young twenties like when we knew each other or met each other was Piers Paul's Reed's book on 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 the Templars hey which I also haven't read I I just kind of like <laughs> I like the lore more than the history I guess I'm that kind of person. Yeah, well, I mean, if you've read The Da Vinci Code, then you basically have read Holy Blood, Holy Grail, though there was a lawsuit about that 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 found in favor of Dan Brown, which I was really surprised by, having read both books. We should maybe say also that, uh, you know, The Da Vinci Code is a book that you and I have had some fun reading aloud to each other, and what is actually the secret origin of this podcast network is us doing that. We also went and saw the film together. That was all at the same time that we were reading and talking about Foucault's Pendulum as well. Um, and Carnival. I mean, you can't... You can't forget Carnival. <laughs> yeah, though I never watched that. I think you recommended it to me and I maybe just didn't. I don't even remember if I checked it out. I think when I told you there were secret Templars, you said it's always Templars or aliens and just swore off TV for a month then, uh, thereafter. So, <laughs> Yeah, that seems right. Or maybe I just went and watched Smallville for the fifth time or something like that. But, uh, yeah, this book was huge, right? I mean, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Obviously, Da Vinci Code was huge too, but it was, you know, it was a bestseller. It was controversial. And I just want to say before we leave it, behind to to get to one of the other things that Alan Moore is doing in this store. I want to say that we may actually cover this book someday, and that's not just speculation, because we are shortly going to begin the series of three votes that will select our themes for 2024. On the first vote, where we just choose a broad category, we are going to have one of those broad categories, something called breaking the mold, which really just means covering things we don't normally cover. And if that is one of the two broad categories that make it, then on the next list, the next vote will be a number of things that people have asked us to cover over the years. This includes poetry and also role-playing games, but also, also on that list, and again, this is by listener request, many listener requests, in fact, will be works of pseudo-scholarship. And of course, Holy Blood, Holy Grail will have to be on that list, along with uh, Murray's Witch Cult book, also Chariots of the Gods, and so on. Like, loads of books that you and I... So, Hamlet's Mill? Yes, right, Hamlet's Mill, yeah. So, anyway, if listeners, you know, if you want to hear us talk about Holy Blood, Holy Grail, or other books like it at 
more length. It is a real possibility. You just have to vote for it on Patreon. Also, the flip side of that is if that sounds terrible to you, if you do not want us to set aside a quarter of next year's episodes for that, uh, you can join us on Patreon and vote against it. You can vote, you go vote for something else. But we have had a lot of listeners request that. So I think there's a very real possibility that that might actually make it. So yeah, uh, a year hence, we may be having a real uh, deep <laughs> dive into uh, this totally bonkers, uh, totally bonkers book. I, I, that would be a real joy to do to do pseudo history. Uh, you know, it's always fun. I, I, you know, I'd have to find a, a literary angle to approach the text so you can uh, stick to history. But uh, my goodness, what a joy that would be to kind of go through some of these, some of these really actually like turgid <laughs> books that are just 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 tortured uh you know expressions of poor data analysis but um you know it would still be a real a real blast to to go through something like that yeah it would be super fun so you know not not trying to sway people to vote one way or the other just letting people know that uh, if you're into this sort of thing hey there is a way that uh, you could get us to cover that but okay right so point here is that alan moore has written a riff on holy blood holy grail but a question is why? Like, why has he done that? And really, what I mean by this, I guess, is just you know, not why because that's fun to do, but really, why for this book, right? Why for this book that is about Northampton? And the answer is this round church that Simon Descendless is constructing because this is a real building. It's a real building that is still extant in Northampton. It's called the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, it is named after the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, and. That connection is important to the story, right? Because that church in Jerusalem actually contains within it the the cave that is the tomb where Jesus was buried and also then from which he was resurrected. Now, the church that Simon constructed, it is round, just like in the story, and also just like in the story, round is uh, an unusual design for a Christian church. But the round design is associated with the Templars. Uh, Many, not all, but many of their chapels all over Christendom were round because they were also modeled on the church in Jerusalem because, hey, the Templars, I mean, their name is from the Temple Mount, right? But the fun deal here is that Simon de Senlis had this church built, and also he just died, I should say. Uh, he did both of those things well before the Templars were even founded. And so Moore here has made a bit of a conspiracy theory out of, well, something that really is just coincidental by making this Earl of Northampton a secret Templar before the Templars had received an official charter from the Pope in 1119. And so yeah, it seems, you know, this is two chapters in a row, right? Two stories in a row. It seems like, at least for this part of the book, Alan Moore is just kind of, like, he's just kind of walking around Northampton, going on architectural tours, and then turning them into weird fiction stories, which is a cool gig. Like, I want that gig. You can have that gig. You just might never be paid for it. And I'm not sure, <laughs> that, I'm not sure that this book sold enough to make a real dent in, in Alan Moore's uh, bank account, you know. But what's, what's interesting to me in terms of connecting this story to uh, the rest of the chapters that came before it is, is this idea that there's this network of caves and tunnels within Northampton. And this has been a motif in nearly every story that we've gotten so far, these hidden caves and what they really hide in Northampton. And uh, again, more is kind of connecting this bit of perhaps Northampton geography uh, to the broader 
cultural and historical movements that are taking place around, you know, the West, broadly speaking. And I think that's really a big part of what Moore is going for here is tying Northampton to the global, well, Western movements of history in uh, just a really fun and fascinating way. You could just read this novel and pick up on its own symbolism and motifs, the treasure in the tunnels that Moore is working with, but then also do what you're doing, Glenn, which is to really tie it to these broader historical concepts as well. You know, everywhere in Northwestern Europe, there are tunnels, right? Because the ground is actually just good for for tunneling. Like you can tunnel really deep underground. I mean, if you've ever been in the Paris Metro or, you know, the London Underground, the Tube, then you you know how freaking deep those, those systems are, like compared to uh, like the New York subway system, for example, or the Philly subway system that are like barely underground. It's like 10 steps and then there's the train as opposed right. to like 100 steps and then there's the train, right? So uh, that's just kind of a fact of the, the geology. I guess, of Northwestern Europe. But I do love the way that Moore is kind of envisioning this as, I don't know, like a D&D world, basically, right? Where obviously underground there's orcs and then also all sorts of cool treasure from like thousands of years of, of history. And some of it's magical, some of it's religious, some of it's just money. Uh, it's all going to make you mad. It's all going to, you know, carry some kind of curse or something like that. So uh, yeah, maybe that's something else to to put on the agenda for the eventual wrap-up episode is how do we turn this then into a D&D campaign? That would actually be <laughs> that would actually be a, a fun question to tackle but all right so this really concludes at this point the uh glenn just blabbers into the microphone portion of the episode so now i've got like actual real questions for you brandon because there's actually quite a bit here that i'm confused about and it's really regarding the templars so the templars have this mummified head and it's the head of jesus and i guess we know that because simon descendless knows it and he knows it because he has some kind of mystical revelation about it as he approaches it because right at first he just doesn't know like what it is at all but this is going back here Brandon to well the intelligence question i guess that you you raised earlier but i just don't really think i understand the plan here how how is the templar plan to blackmail the church with this head going to work exactly i struggle to understand this as well because it's it's something that is easy to cast doubt upon, right? It's easily falsifiable or unfalsifiable, or it's uh, something that the Pope could just say, okay, well, we'll, like, we'll store it at the church and you can have your power, but then just destroy it, right? Like it's a weird piece of evidence to bring into court, so to speak, uh, in order to say Christianity is not true. And that, that to me, is something I don't get. I mean, I really, really don't understand this piece of the story at all, like what the real plan is. It's kind of like uh, the underwear gnomes in South Park, right? Who, <laughs> um, who steal underwear and their ultimate goal is to profit, but they don't have that middle stage mapped out yet, right? And this is like a brilliant... South Park episode about, uh, you know, maybe how businesses function in capitalism or something like that. Well, not being a pure critique is a very funny one. And I, I just, it, it seems to me as though these Templars here are kind of like these underpants gnomes who are like, well, our first step is to, you know, uh, have this body and then then we'll profit. And Simon should be saying, hold on, what's step two? Like, how do you get to that conclusion? And, and another thing Moore is doing in this story uh, that's really fascinating 
um, that's included in this passage that you read in the last episode by calling to mind pandemonium, right, which is the city of demons, um, is getting us to question whether maybe Lord Simon is being tormented by demons, right? We have Baphomet, we have pandemonium, and we have despair, right? This is maybe the work of demons in in some way, uh, is to torment believers to the to the point where they no longer have faith. Uh, but I also don't see how that functions in the story. It's an interesting motif in, in the story itself, in Limping to Jerusalem, and and it, this story could be read in that way, that this is not Moore's attack on Christianity through Templar lore, but rather this is Lord Simon's own despair in kind of uh, in kind of participating in the wickedness that he participated in by going on this uh, holy crusade and, uh, I don't know, engaging in hedonistic pursuits or really uh, awful modes of war, which rape is is one of them. Um, and so I just, I don't know either. I guess that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to explain to you why I don't know. And I just did the best I could. So now it's the balls in your court, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't have an answer here either. I mean, I think the, what we're meant to understand is that the Templars are going to show this head to the Pope. The Pope then is going to have this same mystical experience. And then the Templars are going to say, so yeah, if everyone knows that the body of Christ is still here on earth, then all of the teachings of the church are not true. Like the sacrament, like communion, it doesn't really work, right? If everything hinges on the resurrection, the resurrection didn't happen, then there's no more religion. And so if you don't want us to tell everyone, then, well, this is the step where we profit. That's clearly the plan. But of course, as you've raised earlier in the episode, there's not really a good way to go about showing this to anyone and like making this claim. Like the Templars are going to have to threaten to make this claim to tell everyone this truth that they know. But there's not really any way for them to tell everyone and then also to prove that to everyone. And honestly, I'm not sure that even if everyone in Christendom knew about this head, like knew that this is the head of Christ, I don't think it would do what Moore thinks it would do. I don't think this would shatter the religion, like shatter the faith or break the church. I don't think it would do that at all. Well, it would require everyone to have this same mystical epiphany. And if you're having numinous epiphanies, doesn't that speak to the potential for a larger spiritual realm. And if there's a larger spiritual realm, perhaps there's somebody who made that realm. Like you could really like this would help people perhaps reason to the existence of God more than right. the total absence <laughs> of any of, of the physical body of Christ and, and all of this other stuff allows people to reason. I mean, in Christianity, you have to make this leap, right? There's a lacunae between our material reality and faith in the spiritual world, especially once we get beyond the Enlightenment. And Kierkegaard writes a lot about this. Many other great um, Christian writers have written about this as well. But this lacunae doesn't really exist in in this period of time where faith is assumed. It's cultural. It's a deep part of culture. And so all it would take for someone to say is, uh, you know, the Templars are bringing this head around saying, hey, this is the head of Christ. Um, and I can just imagine someone going, no, it's not. And that would be the end of it, right? <laughs> like, where? How do you have a debate beyond that at this point? So it would really require the existence of a spiritual reality for 
to allow for the type of epiphany that Lord Simon has and everybody would have to have it for this plan to work. And so, yeah, it's, it's murky at best in terms of, uh, the Templars own planning powers here. Uh, so yeah, who knows? Uh, or maybe we're in a kind of Joss Whedon universe where, you know, demons are real because they were here first. Uh, and that's just what alternate dimensions are. There could be a scientific language there behind it, but they don't have access to that in this story. Right. Yeah. You've anticipated where I want to go next with this, but I, I just want to finish up thinking about the the Templars and their their plan here just by saying that, yes, you're, you're absolutely right, that if you're having this mystical experience, this numinous experience, then it is showing that there's some kind of mystical numinous power. You know, it is proving faith in some way, right? And the Templars I, I, you know, I don't think that they believe that this head undermines Christian practice. I mean, the Templars in this story, I mean, at least undermine it in some significant way, because here they are venerating it, right? They themselves are treating it like it's a holy relic and they're using it in their worship service. But, you know, even still, I mean, you know, that's a bit of nitpicking there, but, you know, Moore does infuse all of this with some real genuine creepiness here. And so, yeah, I also, like you, want to take this back to think about and what Moore is trying to do by tying this moment into the history of the Necronomicon, I think you have, you've dwelled on the pandemonium, like the demon idea here, but I guess I was thinking really more in terms of, you know, a question of whether this mummified head is actually the mummified head of a Lovecraftian space alien rather than <laughs> demons. So maybe the demons are space aliens, right? But that's kind of the sense that I have. I think that's what Moore is doing with this illusion. I really hope so. I mean, certainly by the end of the story, we have the classic Lovecraftian protagonist going mad based on their discovery. Reality seems to dissolve at some point to the point where we were, I think, both confused as readers whether or not the relic was actually in, in the cave under the church or whether it was Simon's despair and recollections, regardless of whether that's uh, my own confusion or ours or more. I think what's happening is reality is dissolving for Lord Simon. That's very Lovecraftian. You know, you come across this object and your reality uh, literally becomes unable to contain it so that you go mad. There's nothing that allows you to categorize it or make sense of it. And so madness is the only l thing left for you. Uh, and, and that's what happens to Lord Simon. Simon in the story. So yeah, it is really Lovecraftian. And I'm really glad you you found that connection to the illusions in the, Necron um, the history of the Necronomicon. I think that really opens up what Moore is doing with this story and can maybe act as even a, a critique of my own uh, suggestion that Moore, the author, is breaking through into the text in some, in some way. Yeah, I think that that's true. But I also think it's absolutely right to call this Lovecraftian. I think this is really the first instance of more, you know, in this book, I mean, of, of more writing in a Lovecraftian vein of weird fiction, as opposed to uh, the other types of the other modes that he's been writing in in the the other stories in this book, where I think I would say that these are more in keeping with the tradition of Arthur Mackin and Algernon Blackwood rather than Lovecraft. But here, I think we are full on Lovecraft. I don't know you know, if that will continue. I suspect that you know, Moore is doing a different thing in each story, maybe going back and forth on things here. So we'll see where we go next, which is a question that we will talk about in just a few moments. But before we do that, uh, I want to just check in on where we are here in relation with the other 
story, you know, one of the questions that we always ask about these stories is, hey, what's the supernatural or you know weird element here? I think that we have sufficiently answered that question already. But do we have any of the elements that we've been tracking here, you know, we certainly have the tunnels. That's a big thing that we've been been tracking, though I don't think there's any reference to orcs or black dogs here. Did you see any? I did not. No, they, they are missing from this story, though we have a direct tie to November Saints that's way more explicit than any other stories. And again, something that suggests the, the numinous in a way that it must be real. Uh, but yeah, I didn't see the black dogs. That's what I was going to say. We, we don't see them in this story. No, and, and I don't know that there's really any sense of Hob here either, though there may be, I guess, because there is the fire motif here. It's really just in the background. I think I said earlier that, you know, this is taking place on Halloween, or at least maybe it's November 1st, but it's at any rate, it's it's Sawain, which, you know, kind of becomes Halloween. It's this Celtic harvest festival that happens either on October 31st or November 1st at night. You light some uh, bell fires and you bring your cattle between them. They're like gates of fire. You bring your, your I shouldn't say cattle, I guess the word I should use really is livestock or farm animals through these gates of fire. And it's a kind of cleansing thing that's going to help them through the winter. And so that's where we see the fire motif here, which may also, I guess, you know, Hob isn't brought into that specifically, but we could see where maybe these people think that what they've lit is the hob fire and maybe um, Simon and his wife and his squire have walked by the hob man, you know, the peasant <laughs> hob man on their way to the, the round church. We just didn't get that narrated here by by Simon, but it's there nonetheless in the background maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible. It certainly feels that way. I think more is saying, okay, that that kind of religion has fallen back uh, in in Northampton, you know, at this time, but it's still present. And, but what's dominant is the the kind of the the, the way the Catholic Church has become a, a dominant spiritual force in uh, England at this time. So he still got it in the background, and I and I really be excited to see the way that. More will be engaging with these different forces, whether he's going to say, no, this type of paganism has disappeared uh, entirely, or whether he's going to say, no, strains of it still exist in our world. And it's actually maybe the true religion in some sense. Right. I mean, I think definitely these people who are conducting this ceremony on the night that Simon is having this this breakdown, those people would say that they're Christians. Yeah, they they go to mass, they they take communion, and uh, they're buried in the churchyard and so on. But they also still retain these peasant, you know, these bits of, of, of peasant culture, these peasant rituals for sure. Though, yes, we are definitely also in a book where more is going to make that more sinister than it actually is. So that was actually, I think, a super fun detail here in the story where it's just the background. like It's not called attention to at all. Again, if this were filmed, it would just be out of focus behind you know the characters who are at the camera's yeah. actually focusing on and never have any attention called to it. it. I don't know. I guess we call that sort of thing an Easter egg now, but uh, it was great. It was a great detail. Yeah. And it's throughout the whole story, really, from, from the beginning, this uh, you know peasant culture, so to speak, that or peasant festival that is going to be taking place that really does literally background the story uh, from its from its start. 
Yeah, I guess actually maybe that's really what Moore is doing in this story, because this is the first time that it's really presented clearly as something that we know actually ex- exists, that we know that peasants in the Middle Ages were doing the, the Sawain festival. This is the first time it's recognizable as that. I guess what Moore is subtly doing here is saying, yeah, Sawain and then also therefore Halloween, that's the Hob Festival. And you read about the origins of that back in chapter one, and that's where that all comes from. And that's actually the thing that I'm really tracing through all of these stories here. So I don't know, maybe uh, uh, the last story here that takes place in the 1990s is just going to be about a killer Halloween party. We'll uh, we'll speculate on that when we <laughs> when we get there. We're going to speculate on the next story soon. But before we do that, I, I actually want to talk about how to situate this story in relationship to the others, which is really just to say that, hey, we have now had three stories that are set in pre-modern historical England. Historical here meaning since there's been writing, since we actually have access to written records about this part of the world, and then pre-modern meaning before modernity. And those stories are Diocletian's Head, which is set at really the beginning of late antiquity, and then November Saints, which is set during the Danish invasions, but also set in the late Anglo-Saxon period. And then we have this story, which is set during the early Norman period, but then also, you know, about half of it is actually taking place in another country uh, during the First Crusade. And so we will next be moving on from this period. We're going to be moving on to three stories that are set in early modernity. So I thought, eh, you know, we should maybe reflect back on what Moore has done in this chunk of stories, at least by ranking them. So I guess my question for you, Brandon, really is just of these three stories, which one was your, I don't know, which one was your favorite, I guess? When I think back on which of these stories I'd look most look forward to reading, it, it's Diocletian's Head. I, I really liked that story. I like that it's kind of a little bit of a weird, hard-boiled detective story about, you know, coin forgeries and all, all this sort of stuff that still has this strange background of what's going on in Northampton at the time. That's number one for me. I think uh, it's a tie for third place, maybe, between November Saints and Limping to Jerusalem, though I've really greatly enjoyed our our discussion of Limping limping to Jerusalem. I find, you know, as we've talked about, we talked about this with, uh, you know, Baba Hotep as well, that there's just this focus on the grotesque nature of the body, uh, especially in limping to Jerusalem, that I I find off-putting as a reader, even though, you know, Moore has something really specific in mind in in deploying that or employing that kind of imagery. Um, So maybe November seats ekes out ahead a little bit. Um, even though limping to Jerusalem has stuff that I should love, which is like Templar lore and conspiracies, um, the, the focus on how gross people were back then in Moore's mind does take a few points off, I think for me in the final accounting of the scores. Yeah, we have had grossness from Alan Moore before in this book, and it's also just a thing that Alan Moore does in a lot of other books as well, just this this body grossness that you and I, yeah, we just don't like. We do talk about that really whenever we encounter it, and we've downplayed it. We just haven't made it really much of a discussion point here. There have been other real gross stories in this collection, but we haven't had one for a while. This is the grossest one of them in this period, I mean, for, for sure. But even despite that, even though that's not 
my bag. I think this was probably my favorite of them. I mean, for all the reasons that you just outlined, it's got, you know, these connections to the conspiracy lore really makes me think back to the origins of, you know, that this podcast network, I suppose, us drinking too much coffee at the uh, Barnes and Noble that had a 24 hour coffee shop. And you're uh, <laughs> uh, just having a lot of fun doing that. Uh, filled me with that kind of nostalgia. But strangely, I, I think actually I would put the head of Diocletian as my least favorite of these stories, even though. You've just made a great, compelling case for it. It's hard-boiled. It's really kind of Twin Peaks, except in uh, late antique Roman Britain. But uh, and and late antiquity is what I work on. Late antiquity in the early Middle Ages. But uh, some reason that story just wasn't what I wanted it to be, uh, which is a totally unfair criticism of any story. Is uh, I wanted it to be different than it was. That's not a fair <laughs> criticism. But that was how I felt about it, and so I think that's the lowest for me. So uh, interesting. I mean, I think that's part of what makes uh, makes us a good team here, though, right? Is that we have these uh, these divergent uh, divergent feelings about these stories, and uh, we'll talk more about this, of course, when we do our wrap up episode. That we are for some strange reason starting to think of years years ahead of time. But <laughs> let's move on to thinking about the next story now. This is called Confessions of a Mask. It's going to take place in the year 1607. Um, we've never been right or even close to right in any of our predictions for what these stories are going to be. But what do you think this story is going to be about? I have no idea. To me, it's just a blank place in history, the 17th century. Like I never really know what to think about it or what to make of it. I don't have a lot of great like anchor points to give me a sense of orientation in that time period. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's like pre exploration or even, you know, British settling in the American colonies, I think. So, I don't know. I have no idea what it could be about. I don't know anything about Northampton during this time period. I know even less about England. And so my guess is that uh, we're going to encounter a mask at some point. Yes. I mean, it's in the title. So that's a good that's a good prediction. I think this is, then will be the first time that you've been right. But yeah, uh, the 17th century actually is, is one of my favorite centuries. I find it extremely interesting. Uh, for me, the 18th century is the, uh, why, why are we bothering with that century? It's the most boring century that's ever happened. Though I think for you, that's not true at all. You love right, the Enlightenment. Right, not true at all, so, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So we'll, uh, two stories hence, we will get to have that, or three stories hence, I guess, actually, we'll get to have that conversation. But um, yeah, this century in England, especially, is really important. Uh, English Civil War happens in this period. As you say, this is the century in which uh, colonies in North America come to be founded. Uh, English Civil War is actually part of the background of that. That's Puritans. Those are the people who land on, on Plymouth Rock. But 1607 is before that stuff. But what it is right in the midst of is Shakespeare time. So Maybe mask here refers to like the mask of comedy or the mask of tragedy. And I don't know, in fact, I suspect not, but I have no idea if there's any important Shakespeare connection to Northampton. But, you know, Hamlet was written in 1600. Hamlet has a ghost. Uh, Macbeth was written in 1607, the year of the story, right? Mm. And it has witches. So I don't know. Um Next step, profit, I guess, you know, something along <laughs> those lines, I guess, is what I'm guessing. But I, I also have no idea. And I'm sure that I'm totally wrong. Well, I, I know that I'm going to find out uh, next week when I read it uh, and, and prepare for the episode <laughs> we're going to record on it. So, yeah, I, I'm going to find out real soon. And I'm sure I'm sure you will as well. 
Right. Yeah, we are going to be recording that soon because that episode, uh, we know that we're doing, it's been commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. So real quick, turn around here on that, which is, uh, that'll be super fun for us. But I think now that we are not only speculating about uh, what's going to happen next, but are talking about the uh, machinery of how episodes get decided on, (laughs) we're done with this one. I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thanks again for listening. This was a this was a real treat for me. I always love uh, to hear you uh, display your expertise on history, Glenn. That was really awesome. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. And you can find us and all of our other shows at ClayTempleMedia.com. I hope you'll I hope you'll check them out. I want to say thank you once again to the Patreon supporter who nominated this story, also commissioned the next one. Very excited to do these. It's just a blast for us. I do also want to remind people that on Patreon, we are shortly going to be voting for the 2024 themes, which could actually have us reading Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and revisiting this story in some way. So if you're not already with us on Patreon, uh, please join us. And if you are already on Patreon, but at one of our lower tiers and want to vote, you can consider upgrading your uh, your pledge in order to gain access to the, the voting tiers and have a say in what it is that we're going to be spending a big chunk of our time on 20, in 2024 on. But next time here, we're actually going to be back with a pair of bonus episodes on The Dream of a Ridiculous Man by Dostoevsky. And then after that, we will have our regularly scheduled episode on Parker's Back by Flannery O'Connor. And until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>